Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. John O'Sullivan, you are an operator and a brain that I've been waiting to talk to for a long time. Welcome to Tourpreneur. Thank you very much. Good to be back with a new face uh, behind the helm. John, uh, if anyone's watching on video right now, they're going to see that the label next to your name is One Minute Tours and not Depot Ventures. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me in one minute, to live up to the name, One Minute Tours. If you mm -hmm. could just give me a quick overview of your path in the tour operator world. Yeah, so I've been a tour operator for six, seven years now, um, a tour guide for 10 plus years, but during the pandemic, I started getting really into video, social video, um, and just failed and failed and failed again until all of a sudden I discovered TikTok. And I've started a, uh, um, a social media presence that's kind of outpaced the the business a little bit in terms of the media exposure. I actually just earlier today was on Minnesota Public Radio in the studio getting interviewed on their midday program. I've been on every local news affiliate here in the Twin Cities. And so I'm in a moment of discernment of how I introduce myself. Am I Depot Adventures, which I also am, or am I One Minute Tours? Well, right now the wave seems to be One Minute Tours, so I put that on my uh, subtext for the video. John, you have an American accent. Are you from the United States? I am born and born and raised in Minnesota, but I went overseas uh, 12 years ago um, to go find myself, do a gap year, spend one year overseas, and then it ended up being 12 years. Uh, I just returned in November um, because I felt like there was a better opportunity here in, in the U.S. Uh, for a tour operator. I continue to operate my Australian business from here, but then I'm also firing things up in Minnesota. Did you become a tour guide when you moved over to Australia? No, I've been before. I was working at a hostel in Wales, and then a tour guide came through every two weeks at this hostel, and it seemed really cool. And she worked for Haggis Adventures, which is the same parent company as Busabout. And so I got referred on to that. So my first job was giving tours to 52 people on a bus going through 26 countries in Europe. Uh, it was amazing stomping ground uh, to kind of you know cut my teeth and um, the, the intensive six-week training trip, which is like boot camp style, militaristic, um, and really built me into the, the tour guide that I, I became today. So did that, did a bunch of other stuff in Europe, worked for Sail Croatia, worked for Sandemans, worked for Strawberry Tours. Um, and then when I went to uh, Australia is when I had my, my first kind of semi-successful business venture. You and I uh, have similar paths in that we both started in this industry as guides before we became operators. I'm curious what some of your, I don't know, learnings or words of wisdom are about that time as a guide that you still take with you today as an operator. What, what, what did you learn at that boot camp? 
I mean, I think uh, as a guides, we, we innately understand um, the very high pressure situation, uh, situations that can arise from being on the road. And you, know, you deal with all manner of situations from just, you know, not connecting with a group, kind of boring versions to someone falling down the steps in front of the hydrofoil going out to Capri in Italy. And you have to decide whether to bring your 40 people on the hydrofoil or to look after the one person who might need medical attention. And you need to decide in two minutes because the boat's leaving right then. Those kind of high pressure situations, that's something that happened to me in my first year of guiding. Um, and so I think that we operators that have been guides have a better understanding of, of not just the numbers. And in fact, often guides have the worst understandings of numbers. And I speak for myself <laughs> with that. But we also um, understand what the key requirements are of delivering a really good product. Um, and so, so that's one of the, the superpowers I think that I have is I can land in a city and, and start writing a tour you know, pretty quickly after getting there. What are some of those key aspects that you think about that, that makes a phenomenal experience? Um, I think that it is important to um, not think about the specific city. Like the city doesn't matter like, that you're in. You think about the structure. So in my case, I've got a formula I've developed where I have every tour I give is three hours, no matter what it is. Every tour starts with this intro and ends with this outro. And it has two tentpole stories kind of at the one third and two thirds mark where it's like a big picture thing. Um, they always have some inclusion that makes people feel, feel welcomed, whether it's a, a coffee or a beer or a dinner or that sort of thing. Um, and they, uh, that's where I start from. And then I go find in the city things that work within that framework. Um, as opposed to landing in, say I'm in Minneapolis right now and thinking, well, gosh, I've got to talk about the mill district because we're a famous flour milling town. Um, because we start from there you don't have the structure that works for a tour. What I, what I found here developing tours is that the Million District is just god-awful in the wintertime. Nobody wants to be in the middle of the Mississippi in minus 20-degree Fahrenheit weather. <laughs> and so um, you start with a structure and you, you bend the city into that structure um, so that you can deliver a good product. That's fascinating because, you know, I'm a New Yorker and oftentimes – as a local, you're actually blinded to the way a traveler from outside perceives what is exciting or what's worth spending time in. And I think, uh, you know, we can sometimes suffer from that sort of expert blindness of thinking this is what a tour must be in my city. This is if, mm -hmm. if we didn't do this, it would be crazy. And yep. yet for you, beginning with that kind of structure that you know works on an emotional and connection level with your with your guest allows you the freedom to sort of almost I guess disregard some of that received wisdom about what you're supposed to do and create something that works as an experience oh, I'm in a, I'm in a conversation about this right now so I've just believed my guide team so I've hired three tour guides here and we had one of our first two team meetings a few weeks ago and our tour keeps running long it's a three-hour tour but I want them to hit the bar, we finish at a bar. I want them to hit the bar at two and a half hours in so that we can sit down for a half hour and just converse. So it's not like a, you know, tour, tour, tour. It's just like a, I want a human connection. Um, but we kept getting to the bar at like two hours and 57 minutes, which wasn't enough time to have that organic conversation. The tour itself, imagine it like it kind of goes in a semicircle. So it starts uh, imagine, at point A and then it goes to point B. Um, and we were going on 
uh, a full, a nearly a near circle is what it was was looking like to get from A to B. And so I said, you know what we got to do? We got to pick a side of the circle. We're either going to go on the bottom half or the top half of the circle. So if it's the bottom half of the circle, that means we're going to go see the mansions of Summit Hill. We're going to go down to the downtown area of St. Paul, and then we'll finish uh, at, at the pub near there. Or the other option is we'll go up by the Capitol and see some of the memorials of the Capitol building and then come down. My guide team really resisted this because they, 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 they couldn't figure out how to kill their darlings, uh, to use an expression. Like they couldn't figure out, like, how do I give a tour that doesn't include the Capitol, that doesn't include the mansions? And, you know, I, I need to work on this as a manager because I've been through this decision point enough times that it was kind of like a, uh, a boring conversation for me because I already knew what the answer was. It was, we're going to do it. We are going to cut half the tour out. And you as a tour guide will find a way to make the tour be really good, even in spite of the fact that you aren't visiting the Capitol. Um, and that's something that I've, I've learned over time is like a good tour guide should be able to make going through a cornfield in Iowa interesting and engaging. It doesn't matter what you actually do on the tour. The, the, the buildings don't matter. The history doesn't matter. It's can this tour guide convince you that where you are at this moment in time is important. One of the, one of the phrases that is trite but comes up in the book, The Experience Economy, a lot is just that a traveler is looking for time well spent. That an experience is about the time that you have together feeling meaningful and is seeing this thing that everyone expects to see meaningful. Well, it might be, but it doesn't have to be the only path towards a connection between the place and the guide and the travelers. And you're right that that magic can come in so many other ways. And actually, more, the more often it's unexpected and different, the more magical it is. Mm. A Capitol building can only be so special because we already kind of expect it. You go to Washington, D.C., you expect that you're going to go to that. The, yeah. the wow moments come from when the guide reveals something different or takes you on an, a trajectory that was unexpected. You know, I was just listening to the episode uh, yesterday with uh, Tony at Urban Adventures, who I've worked with a lot. Um, I, I used to run Urban Adventures in Melbourne. And uh, something that he taught me and that Urban Adventures taught me generally is the idea of a of a landmark with a twist. Uh, so yeah, everyone's gonna go to the Empire State Building, but how do you add to that? So you, you use the gravitational pull of the Empire State Building to drive customers in, but then you don't actually make the tour of the Empire State Building. You go to someplace that's different and interesting and off there. That's, that's one of the big kind of lessons I, I, I took away from my time there. How do you go about balancing the talent, the skills, the personality, the initiative that your guides have to do their thing and have their opinions and have their stories with what you need to achieve as a business owner. I'm wondering what that process looks like. Um, I think as I've, as I've gotten some more experience uh, building teams in a few places, I've gotten less and less interested in training someone in an actual tour. If I need to train them in on how to give a tour that I've already failed, it's the recruitment phase that I need to focus on. Um, I've basically, if I get an application from someone who's a historian, I just, I just discard it immediately. Um, historians are typically the worst applicants that I get um, because they, they think they want to be a tour guide, but they don't actually, uh, oftentimes, I'm speaking with a very broad brush here, but uh, they don't often have uh, the most important skill, which is the emotional intelligence of what does this person want from me right now? How long should this story be? Um, you know, in 
in my kind of business at least, which is oriented around out of towners coming to, coming to the Twin Cities or Melbourne or Sydney once and then probably never again. What is the most important thing we can share with them in the next two hours? And if it's a detailed history of the French fur trade, well, we're not really doing them a service. So for me, I look for really compelling people, um, beer makers, stand-up comedians, actors, um, tattoo artists. These are the kind of people who have worked with me in the past uh, and been some of the most memorable guides that I've had. Um, single moms are amazing. Uh, single moms are some of the best tour guides that, I, that I've had because they're really good at just working really hard and, and multitasking and being able to read a room. So anyway, th th these are the profiles that I look for in the recruitment phase. And then the training is just I take them on my tour and then I take them on another guide's tour. They shadow another guide's tour. I give them a bullet point list of like, hey, here's what our marketing says of where we're going to go to. Good luck. And then, you know, the first tour they give is always going to parrot uh, the, the uh, people they've shadowed. But eventually, if I've done well in the hiring process, I come back in a month or two and it's a totally different tour because they've found that agency to share the stories they want to tell i could care less if um someone tells the story of cass gilbert building the minnesota capital i tell that story i'm interested in it but if someone else is not interested in it then they should not be telling that story i think sometimes a guide feels the weight of i must talk about this mm. i must address the year this was built and the architect and the style of the column because that's what a tour guide does. There's this sort of received wisdom that dates from an era, a, by, a very bygone era of the tour guide as the information keeper. And in this new era where the information is prolific, the guide has to be doing something different. They need to bring a different skill set to the experience. Yeah. Yeah. We have to think about what is our defensibility in the age of Wikipedia. Like there is no piece of information that we are going to offer to our guests that they couldn't have found on their own. And so if that's the case, and well, what service are we really delivering to them? Like, yeah, you know what? I use Wikipedia and I use you know, books by the Minnesota Historical Press. and I commit a lot of things to memory where I can, but that's not actually that useful. It's not anything my competitor won't be able to do. And it's not something that my client themselves couldn't just go do on their own. And so the question becomes, what is it we're doing here? And so to me, my reason for being, uh, from a customer facing perspective, is I want to give you a local mate in every town you go to. That uh, personal recommendation of someone who is just sharing with you their life, that's the experience that we can defend against, not uh, the Minnesota, Minnesota State Capitol was constructed in 1905. So you're talking a lot about Minnesota right now, but you started touring as a company owner in Australia. So I do want to talk about this potential of diversification of your business by entering into different cities. This is often the holy grail of operators who have big wide eyes for scaling their business. They can see opening up all sorts of cities around the world and creating this global empire. What I see is not a lot of companies that have gotten there. Yeah. That there aren't a lot of day tour global brands. <clears throat> you, you span the entire globe, Minnesota to Australia, uh, or Minnesota and Australia. Right. So, and, <laughs> excuse me. 
I'm, so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the expansion model of a day tour operator, not just saturating their market, but looking to other cities and what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, I, I got some interesting insight from this, having worked uh, with uh, Sandemans and uh, Urban Adventures, seeing that both these operators trying to, to be global operators. Um, but they they both push the risk outward uh, to other businesses um, in that both these operators didn't uh, take the, the hunch of having below minimum numbers under tours. That, that risk was always held by uh, DMCs, essentially, by, by often these DMCs are just one person DMCs of a, of a guide. Um, but that's the only uh, experience I've had of seeing how these global day tour operators can work. And so I have always had this, this dream, I guess, this hope that the thing that we can do that's really unique is not have a really strong brand and then push on to other people the execution of delivering on the tours, it's let's figure out how to systemize this is how a tour will work in a city and then take on the risk of hiring someone and expand to a bunch of cities. That, that's, that was kind of the dream I had a few years back. Um, and what I've learned is that it's really hard to get uh, that capital, to get the, get the capital where it's worth the, in, where you are, able to take on enough risk of hiring someone that you don't know and then sending them to some city you're not in and hoping that they do right. Um, so I, I've never been able to make that work. We, I lived in Melbourne and so Melbourne is now successful because it's been going for six years and I've developed deep roots with our partners and our staff. And uh, I, I've got a really like solid connection with the people who work down there, a personal connection. Now I'm in St. Paul uh, and giving tours in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And the reason is because personally, uh, it was just time for us to live in the USA. I was a young kid and wanted him to be a relationship with his grandparents. Um, and so the personal life kind of pushed me down the, the rabbit hole of expanding to Minnesota because having an operator in Melbourne and Minnesota makes zero sense. Both start with M. Oh, yeah. You've got that, I guess. Um, but what you've got is uh, me. I am in the city that I need to be developing, which is the Twin Cities. Melbourne can operate without me physically being there because I have the uh, relationships where I can communicate in absentia, but I need to be here in the Twin Cities right now. And what I've started to realize, I've started to kind of come to grips with is perhaps the only expansion strategy that I know how to do is going to be me going to new cities and starting them up and getting them firing on all cylinders and moving on. So it's not the most scalable model in the world, but I've gotten comfortable with the idea of if I can have successful walking tour operations in Minnesota, in Melbourne, and let's say London as well, because I really want to be in London, uh, that means I can fly between each of those places and have uh, operations in the places that I just want to be personally. It's a completely selfish endeavor. I moved away from the idea of trying to justify it from a business perspective. You know, it's really interesting. I had a conversation with Lauren Eloise of Devour Tour, the co-founder of Devour Tours, and her advice to food tour operators looking to scale was precisely the opposite, which was don't try to be the person that has to go and create the new city on your own, by yourself, the new partnerships. Find the right person in that city that you can partner with, that that has those relationships that you can leverage to make sure that 
it happens faster than you having to build that everything from build out everything from nothing. Mm-hmm. Is there a question? Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Is the, the, the question is, it seems to me that you're advocating that you've got to be there to make it happen, that there isn't a shortcut to finding the right person on the ground. Let's say you want to go to, let's say you want to go to Chicago. What do you do? Yeah. I can't defend it. I can't defend it from a business perspective. I, I've okay. got I've got zero defense on it, uh, but it, it's it's how I've been able to figure out how to make it work. I think like when I do an analysis on what my skill set is, it is not the operational playbook of you know having binders and binders full of information that I can hand to someone else and have them run off like Lauren was saying on there, but the unique skill that I do have is I'm pretty good at making shit happen <laughs> when I, when my French, when I get into a city, like I will strong arm my way into a bar and like have that chat with the bartender that you never can get the commercial arrangement over email with the bar owner and just make stuff work. And I've um, found that that, that skill set is one that is um, uh, unique to my like, my my personality type i haven't found as many very many people who are able to just show up and make a tour happen um yeah yeah no that's interesting you know you know what you bring to the table and you're 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 turning that into a into a value prop for your tour it sounds like i'm tuning my horn it's an indictment really like i'm not i'm not skilled enough as a business person to systemize it and become this global superpower that I had this dream of doing, but I've started to get comfortable with that. Like I, I, I don't, I think I've had enough years on this earth to know what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And I, I just, I've come away with the idea, you know what, I, I don't think I am the person to be in 50 cities and all the capital cities in the U.S., for example. Um, so. I, I well, let's talk be- about that. You're in two cities. Are they operated under the same brand? Same brand, different entities corporate entities uh with a license uh, informal license agreement from one to the other um i i didn't really know what to do because I, I was coming over here and i wanted to do tours over here and i'd already done all this branding work on depot adventures that was supposed to launch in april of 2020 and we know how that went and so i had this new brand that i just introduced i started out as walks 101 then i became depot adventures and i wasn't going to go and start a whole new brand again i'd just gone through this whole thing so i just said all right we're just depot adventures minnesota um and that was that um and then i rebuilt our website earlier this year and worked with a really great agency in in uh melbourne called ground zero digital recommended thumbs up uh for anyone who's looking for a good agency they're like how are we going to do this how are we going to have a website that targets seo keywords for melbourne and for minneapolis it doesn't make any sense i was like yeah you're right (laughs) and so what we did is we just we we played dress up and pretended we were a global operator and so I picked all the cities where I could imagine myself operating in at some point in the future. Um, and so when you go to our website, you see a drop-down menu of Los Angeles and Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul and Sydney and London. And really the only pages that are populated with tours are Melbourne and Minneapolis and uh, Sydney. Um, but the other ones are um, affiliate links. Uh, so we'll see if we can turn that into a, another commercial play of getting some affiliate traffic over to get your guide. Uh, that was the only way I could justify a company that exists in two such dis- in such disparate two places. And probably in hindsight, I should have just started a new brand uh, over here. It's just, it is very confusing. Well, let's talk about 
that brand level of operating in multiple cities. What does it bring from the consumer's perspective in your point of view that the tour that I'm booking is a global brand? And I ask this because I know a lot of companies oh, that yeah. are thinking about wanting to be expanded. Does that lend authority to the customer or does it make the customer say, wait a minute, I want something really local and really authentic. And here no. I am. It's the McDonald's of, of tour brands. No, I don't think it does anything. I don't think it does anything negative for the customer. I think any, you will get the drawbacks of like, oh, it doesn't look like a janky website operated by some guy with a clipboard who is like <laughs> surfing all day. Like that, there is a cool authenticity to that as a customer. Um, I assume you're talking side, about Australia. <laughs> yeah, surfing in Minnesota is not as good. <laughs> but I think the flip side is that I have the overhead of two different operating entities to contribute to the website. And so I'm pretty proud of how our website looks. I think it looks a lot more professional uh, than it has any right to be. And my evidence of that is that I show up on a tour and tell people I'm the owner, like, oh my gosh, you're the owner. They think I'm like an Amazon or something because our, our website is really sleek um, and it makes it look like it's not just like a, uh, operate. We've got we've got five employees in Melbourne, and we have three employees in, in four employees in Minnesota. Um, and, but we, our website looks like we're some big operator. Um, I think that the advantage of being a multi city operator is much more on the operational side. It's like it's much easier to just figure out. Oh well, we do our scheduling on this piece of software, and our reservations on this piece of software, and we already have relationships with all these OTAs, and so we can you know, just double our sales channels immediately. That's the, the advantage is more from a, a sales side and the operational side. From a customer side, it's kind of a wash um, in terms of the advantages and disadvantages. It's a really good looking website. I think it's a great model that Thanks. all of our audience should be looking at. And one of the things that I love is that you highlight your guides on the homepage. Hmm. You even that was a call big, them- big directive. Yeah, you even call them out by name. Uh, we'll talk about tour guides in a second, but I do want to s sort of put a button on this global brand issue by talking about entering a market like the United States where you have cities, New York City, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., saturated with OTA listings with a high cost of PPC uh, and a very well-developed sort of tourism walking tour ecosystem. You're entering more mid-market, and what has that experience been in a city like uh, Minneapolis? And, 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 and I really want to get your opinion specifically in terms of how you enter that from a sales perspective. How do you start selling? Do you, do you, are you beholden to the OTAs? Are you able to sort of develop a brand and do some more boots on the ground relationship building? What, 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 what has been your strategy and what's been working? I partner with the OTAs. I don't have the money for the PPC campaigns. And so the OTAs are running my marketing strategy at the start. And I think that's what more people should do. I think there's like this intense skepticism that people have with our OTA partners. And they are partners and do an incredible service to us because I... Who's paying you? Tell, tell, tell me, who's paying you right now? <laughs> they, I, I, seriously, I think that we as small operators have this incredibly hostile relationship, at least from what I read in the Tourpreneur Facebook group. And talk, when I talk to other operators, everyone just gets so bent out of shape about the percentage they're taking. Um, but the service they're delivering, like you can't, I, I'd be very surprised if you can get that volume uh, that they get with the percentage of revenue that they're able to attract a customer for. Um, 
So in the early days, I just copied and pasted what we were doing in Melbourne. So we had a TripAdvisor account or Viator account already. I just you know replicated that over here in the Twin Cities using my knowledge of what works on that platform. And like we've grown much, much faster than we did in Melbourne uh, here in Twin Cities because we were able to um, just let the OTAs do all our work for us. And then slowly but surely, I've kind of come up the rear and started doing my own marketing efforts. So I've done these social videos, for example, uh, that are starting to connect. And it's a much longer process, I think, of finding what marketing strategy is going to work for direct sales. And I probably won't have a good answer uh, for another couple of years, um, which is just, that's my process. So the OTAs are keeping me afloat for now. And then slowly I'll be able to change the ratio. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm just going to price my tours appropriately. So you'll see my tours are priced at a premium price. I charge more for a walking tour than you can get a Segway tour for here in Minneapolis. Um, and that's fine. You say that's fine and it's because you're finding customers and they're writing rave reviews and it's, yep. uh, is, is that the secret? Basically you yep. deliver on it and the reviews do the work? Well, yeah. And also the OTAs have a perverse incentive to want to give customers a worse value <laughs> that, that from an OTA perspective, they, they charge a percentage. So they want your ticket price to be higher. And so I think, especially with these small shops that we have in the tourpreneur community, we have a, an attachment to this idea of like, oh, am I really giving a hundred dollars of value? Do I feel good about taking a hundred dollars to give a tour? And that's just, to me, a question I stopped asking. Like, it's the, the answer of if you should be charging $100 to, to give a tour is if someone will give you $100. And in my case, uh, five years ago, I charged $29 for my bar tour in uh, Melbourne. And today I charge $99, and it's the exact same tour. Um, and every time I've increased prices, I've also increased volume um, because it's just given us more uh, money to play with with marketing and also made us be a, a sustainable business from a margin perspective. A lot of that money that you are earning is going to your guides. I know you to be one of the approximately three oper global <laughs> operators that I know. <laughs> I think I mean that. I think I literally mean three operators that I know globally. Uh, I know Aquila at Unexpected. I know John Laverne at Bulldog Tours. Um, hire your guides as full employees. And yep. that's a that's 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 a that's an extreme risk because you're looking at an unpredictable tour season and saying, I'm gonna commit to you as someone in my tribe, in my company. And so what has that journey been to lead you to make that decision? And what are you doing as a business owner to make sure that it's not just an act of largesse, but also a shrewd business move? Um, it is a shrewd business move, and it's a move that everybody should be doing. Uh, if you're operating with freelancers, I, I would put money on that you are doing it in a, in a nature that if it were put under a microscope, you could be a recipient of fines uh, and, and legal challenges to it. Because to operate in a true freelance relationship in terms of what I see, uh, how we in the tourpreneur uh, community operate, you need to, to do all sorts of things. Like it, it's very difficult to give people uniforms, for example, to wear if there's freelancers. And it's very difficult to tell them that they have to go on this prescribed route if they're a freelancer. There's all sorts of legal challenges to um, using freelancers. And the reason for that is that um, we as a society 
have decided collectively that if you work for a company, that that company has a responsibility to protect you. Um, and in our industry, people have sidestepped that responsibility uh, by passing off risk to their guides. Um, as an example for this, every tour guide job I worked at before I started my company, there was no liability protection for me as a guide. There would often be something written into a contract that said, I assumed liability protection, but I can count on one hand the number of people that I knew personally who actually went out and got public liability insurance. And that is a tremendous risk, both for our guests and for our guides, and frankly, for the co companies that are running these, because it's an unethical way of operating, uh, to do something that you know is um, uh, putting people at risk. And so if someone gets hit by a bus on your tour and you're a freelancer working for an operator, um, you're going to get, you can get, you know, fined or jail time for that. It is a, it is a responsibility of operators to make sure that we are compliant. Um, and uh, so to me, it's, it's not really a, it's not a decision point. Like we have mechanisms in our society to, um, tell employers or tell companies how they should treat their employees. Um, and the way we're treating these people as tour guides is as employees. And so it's like a one plus one equals two sort of question for me. How do you, two, two objections I can hear our audience saying, I'm going to speak sure. on their behalf. One is you um, are in a situation in which because of OTAs and other pressures, you are being squeezed into the commodification of our industry and a price price sensitive uh, uh, product that can't afford that luxury. Second objection, and I know I've, I've heard this many times, is the seasonality of the job. I need four, I need 45 guides for eight weeks out of the year. What the heck am I going to do for the rest of the yeah. year? Or I, I'm exaggerating, but to me, yeah, those yeah. are the objections I see the most often <clears throat> in the community. Keep hitting me with them. I love, I love to bat these down. Uh, because number one, uh, the objection uh, about pricing, if you can't afford to run your business ethically, then you shouldn't be running your business. End of, end of sentence. <laughs> like it, it, This idea of like, oh, well, my competitors are making me keep my price down. No, they're not. They're not keeping a gun to your head and saying that you have to price below them. Price what you need to price and then find a way to uh, deliver on that sewer Maybe that means that you have to give the tours personally in the early days because you can't afford those wage costs. Uh, maybe it means that you can't scale as quickly, but it's, it's, it's not a valid uh, reason to say, oh, well, I, I can't charge the price that I need to uh, because you're choosing what price uh, you should be charging and you need to find a marketing strategy that works for that um, or cha change from a commodif commodified product over to one that has more protections. And I've heard you guys talk about a lot. Option two is I don't understand the seasonality objection. There's there's part time uh, part time contracts, casual contracts, in uh, the three countries that I've operated in, um, and so it's it's a seasonal job and it's a hiring challenge to be sure. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I I should I should acknowledge here that I'm talking about a very specific part of our industry. I do know that there are companies that work with freelancers in a professionalized sense and they do make them show their liability insurance and that there is like a, a um, what's the name of the U.S. organization of tour directors, of multi-day tour directors. Yeah, the NFTGA. There's a, yeah. there's, for example, good resources out there and you as yeah. an operator could even pay it. It's a hundred dollar liability insurance for the guy that protects them yeah. doing their job for you. Yeah. 
the, uh, the NFTGA, like uh, people who work with guides who are at NFTGA, that's a different story uh, than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ghost tour operator that hires college students uh, for a month of the year and says, oh, it's just going to be a freelance contract. That's the part that I think we need to do better as an industry uh, yeah. and be employing those people. Yeah. I should also say that it's better for it's a business strategy. Like it's a better environment to be in. People like being looked after. They like being able to uh, feel a, a degree of um, protection, I guess, from their employer. And it will make uh, for a less combative environment. When you work with uh, freelancers, it often means it's, it's often a red flag. And I'm speaking from experience because I started working with freelancers. I'm not, I'm not free of, of, of guilt from this. I, I learned the hard way of, of having a really negative company culture um, of people you know, fighting over wanting to have this tour because the tips were better than this tour um, and constantly trying to scrape by because I was never giving people what they needed, which was some certainty around how much uh, work they were going to have. It might be that you, get, you have to hire people and say, look, I'm only going to give you job, give you work on Saturdays, but I, you will have a payday every Saturday for the next three months. And that might be all you can offer. But there are people who want that. Like there's, there's a recruitment strategy for that. There are people who just want to give a tour every Saturday for the summertime. And that's, that's a, a good way to get started uh, on the employment uh, kind of path. I want to end with two things that start with T, tips and TikTok. And sure. I know two of these have been recent experiments and uh, the uh, 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 topics that, uh, that have been occupying your mind. And so I'm interested, especially as we discuss guides and the pain points in the employment of being a guide, and both of us, again, started as guides, and so we know this very well, that tips are a big deal. And there's a lot of variables that go into that. I know you've been working on some thoughts around that. I'm wondering if you could just tell me about what your current thinking is around, around gratuities and guides as an operator. I hate tips. Tips are my <laughs> least favorite thing in the world. I think that they're awful as a society. I think they're a way for, I mean, just it, not just in our industry, but in all industries that take tips, it's a way to uh, shirk responsibility from the employer to pay someone a fair wage. And you hear all the time in our space, people say, oh, well, you know, it's a low wage, but the tips are really good. Um, but as an employer or an operator who uses freelancers in some cases, um, you can't guarantee that. You can't guarantee how much tips someone is going to make. You can say, oh, yeah, it does pretty well. Usually you walk away with a few hundred bucks, that sort of thing. But that's not a planable uh, like compensation model. And, I, and my, my reason for starting this company from the back-end perspective was I wanted to create career track opportunities for tour guides. I wanted to find a business model that worked for that. It was fine in Australia, not an issue in Australia because tips were not really culturally a thing. But now I've landed here and I found this whole world of like our industry being so dictated by tips. And so my competition tells you, oh, you get great tips, that sort of thing. But then they pay them, you know, absolute minimum wage, bottom of the barrel. And so what I've been working on is how can I make it so that the tips that come in at the end of the tour are more predictable? And so what I've been working on is a tip pooling arrangement. Because the big challenge for us as tour guides is that you'll have a three-hour tour with sometimes just two people on it, and your colleague will have a three-hour tour the next day, which might have 10 people on it. And if your average tip per person is 10 bucks, well, $100 is a lot more than $20, even though it's the same amount of work 
happening. And so what I've been working on is tip pooling in the sense that like if you're working at a restaurant and everyone shares in one pot and then distributes it out at the end of the night, we do that uh, in our business, but on a pay run basis, on a fortnightly basis. So at the end of every two week period, everyone reports the tips they got. We facilitate them getting tips by doing marketing campaigns. Hey, did you tip your guide? You can do it here. We do square readers. They can take payments, et cetera, et cetera. We do everything we can to get those tips to be as high as possible. And then we look at the percentage of time each person has worked. So if there's $100 in a kitty at the end of a fortnight and one guy has worked 90% of the time and the other guy has worked uh, 10% of the time, well, then that first guy will get $90 and the second guy will get $10. Um, and then because we're all working collaboratively on this, we're meeting every two weeks and saying, hey, how do we do on tips? So I'm looking right now, I'm not going to use names, but like uh, in the last pay run, Guide A made $5.71 per customer in tips and Guide B made $8.17 in tips per customer. And this is before I've done any marketing stuff. So all that stuff about Square Readers is just not asking for it, just cash people shoving our hands. Um, and now in the second fortnight, Guide A made six sixty six sixty seven per person in tips. Guide B made eleven twenty five, and that's super interesting. That's super interesting because that chasm, there's a big gap between those two numbers, and it tells me that there's more to be done here. That I can we can work as a team to make it so it's not eleven twenty five on average per person that we're making, but actually it's. $30 per person on average per person we're making. And that's when you get to the realm of like, you're actually able, you're able, I would actually be able to make it a predictable part of someone's income. Uh, the challenge is uh, legislation. Uh, it's, it's really difficult to do this legally in the US. A, legally. B, what is the guy doing physically? Are they bringing their cash to this biweekly meeting and then divvying it up uh, yeah. in, in, a, in uh, a back room? No, they're delivering it to me as the operator. I'm being very transparent about how much tips there are. They, they enter it into Square. So we use the Square readers as a POS for some people's phones. And mm -hmm. so at the end of every tour, they enter their cash tips. They also offer the customers, hey, do you want to do a card tip? They can do a card tip as well. Um, and then uh, the money comes to the head office, and then it gets paid out in the payroll software. So we use Gusto as our payroll provider. Um, and so there's an option to just pay out tips that way. 100% of the tips that we receive goes to the guides and we're very transparent about that. Um, I would really like it if we had a scenario where our guides are making $30, $40 an hour. Um, but I can't, I can't sustain that uh, and have the price points be what they are. But I think I can sustain it if we make the tips more predictable um, on here. So that, that's what I'm working on. What kind of trip solicitation tips can you share that have been effective for you, for your guides? We end at a bar, we sit down, I buy him a beer, because that's included with the tour. And then I give some signals that, hey, the tour is coming to a close. So I don't explicitly say, if you'd like to tip, go ahead and tip. Uh, but I have a map, I circle all the places we've been to, I give them hints and tips about other things to do while they're here that's customized to what they've told me about themselves on the tour. And I say, guys, look, i got to hit the road. I've got another tour to give. Even if I don't have another tour to give, that's always a line. Um, I'm just going to go use the bathroom. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to say goodbye to you all, and thank you so much. And then I go to the bathroom, and I just, even if I don't have to go to the bathroom, I just pull up my phone, just sit there for a few minutes, because I'm letting them say, hey, should we tip this guy? 
they, they're talking it over. And then I come back and maybe 50% of the time I come back, hey, thank you guys so much. I'm going to shake each individual person's hand. And then about 50% of the time, there's cash in the handshake. It's, it's, uh, that's, that's my strategy so far. And that's getting me to have an average of about 7 or $8 per person without explicitly asking. I've just hired a new guide, his name is Dan, he's doing a great job. Uh, and he, being an American self, I've been away for 12 years, so I'm maybe more sheepish about this. He just says, hey guys, if you look at tip, tips are appreciated. And he's doubled my, my take uh, nearly uh, by just asking explicitly. Uh, and so I'm gonna continue down this road and maybe I can check back with you in a few months after we've uh, had more numbers behind this because we're only four weeks into this experiment. Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating experiment. Have you had any pushback from your guides? No, uh, and most of that is because um, the laws are very clear in Minnesota, especially, and restrictive. Um, companies, if they they can offer tip pooling, but it cannot be coerced, and it cannot be. Um, it has to be the guides proactive saying, "Yeah, I would like to tip pool." And so I offer them a sheet of paper that I've written as like a legal document and it explains why tip pooling is advantageous for some, but why they don't have to do it also. And so they can choose whether to do this pooling option or just take the money they get. And that's that. Um, and either one is totally fine. And I genuinely mean that. I, like I, I try to tell them, hey, I think that the tip pooling thing works better for me, but you do whatever you want. That's completely fine. Um, and they can change back and forth as well. It's not permanent. Each pay period, they can do it a different method. Um, and uh, I think those two things, th those things have made it so that there's not pushback because I'm not doing anything. Like I'm still giving them the option to do whatever. And all the guides so far have, have decided to go on this tip pooling journey. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see what happens once someone gets their first big, big tip that they have to share. Like that might be the pain point. That might be where this experiment breaks. Um, but I think I can come at it from a pretty sincere place because I am giving the tours and I'm participating in this arrangement. And in the last pay period, I accepted $49 of tips, but I only was paid out $28 of tips because I worked less hours. So I had to give away some money. And so um, I, can, I can show people that like, this is not something I'm trying to exploit you over. I think yeah. one of the maybe great things about what you're doing is that you're also buttressing it with a guide community that is paid employees that has some of the other strictures in place that gives them the stability to be in this all for one rather than, uh, you know, a mercenary that just wants their allocations and their hourly rate and their tips and go home. Oh, and also I pay them 20 bucks an hour as a flat rate on top of this. So the minimum wage in Twin Cities, I think is $15. I checked around with competitors. So I'm paying better than my competitors and I'm doing this uh, tips thing as well. And I, I should also say that um, the, the place that this came from was when I was doing the free tours before, I did this big business model change. If people are interested in it, they can go look at a big write-up about it on LinkedIn where I went into the numbers. It's, it's more in the weeds than we need to get right now. But basically what I did is at the end of the tour, when people said, hey, you can give whatever you think the tour is worth, that money became company revenue. And then we paid a fair wage to the guides as a flat rate. And they didn't, that was not their money. It, it, it was free tour revenue is what we called it. I'm not sure if that's going to legally work in Minnesota. I'm, I'm working with some lawyers uh, here to, to figure it out. It might not. Um, but what I found by doing that is that most tour guides that I've worked with are not as entrepreneurial as I am. They just mm -hmm. want to give a tour and have a fun time and go home. They, they care less about this whole like, oh, am I going to make more or less today? 
if you give them a good wage, they kind of want to help out with the business. And so what we did is we had weekly meetings and I had a whiteboard and I wrote the average tips for each guide. It was very transparent. There's no secret about this. I said what the average upsell rate was, um, what the average review rate was for each guide individually. And then we highlighted the outstanding people. So, it's, oh, look, Caitlin, you made $14 per person on uh, revenue this week. What did you do differently? And she said, oh, I tried this new thing where we did this, that, and the other. And all the team listened and learned. And then we were all doing better. And same thing with the, the other metrics. And so my belief is that the rising tide will raise all ships with individual performance. Uh, but for it to work, I, as the employer, need to take on the risk uh, of of hiring these people um, and having them go a few tours and hoping that they can collect the tips. You took a risk in adopting very early in the pandemic a new social media medium that rose meteorically during the pandemic, TikTok. I'm curious as an operator and also an experienced because you were camera facing, you were the guide and the talent on the camera, what your experience was developing a TikTok presence and then turning it into a business proposition for you? Yeah, it was long and ugly in that I did a lot of really bad videos for a very long time. Uh, I started out uh, the pandemic being like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I think I've got all this time. The government's giving my staff money to stay employed. We can't do the thing we're good at. So we did YouTube videos. We did Instagram live streams. Uh, we just did full tours in, in video form. Um, I looked into doing 3D video and each one of these videos got like maybe tens of views in the, in the best case. Like it did not do well. We had like a six month stint where we were doing daily videos or three of us on payroll and each of us would, would alternate the video of the day and it'd be a five to 10 minute video. Um, and again, like the, the a good performing video for us would be six or 700 clicks or, or views. Um, because nobody cares. Nobody wants to watch that much, that long content on it. Then uh, I started looking at TikTok and um, just I started consuming it, being interested in it, and realized that, you know, the, this is one minute limit. They've since increased it, but at the time it was one minute limit on the TikToks. I'm like, well, I have a 180 minute tour. And so presumably I have, a one, I have 180 videos I could just get in the bank right away. And so that was where it started is just like filming my tour and like I didn't film it all in a row, but I like went out and took the most interesting parts and that time limitation of exactly a minute was super interesting and fun for me. It like, it kind of felt like, you know, just trying to time, time things just perfectly. was like a fun, like seeing that timer go down and I would stretch it or, or shorten it as needed. That was a fun creative endeavor. Um, and then it turned out there's a just tremendous demand for this. Um, started in Melbourne uh, I had videos that got a half million views on them uh, in, in Melvin. And uh, then I came over here and started a new account and it's continued over here so much so that it's, it's now its own beast. So I've now rebranded it as one minute tours. I bought the domain for one minute tours. I'm working on how to monetize this side of the business because um, I'm not finding there's a lot of conversions under my tours. I think there's the uh, amount of interest that someone has to watch a TikTok video is like this circle in the Venn diagram and the willingness to pay $100 for a tour is this circle. There's very little overlap. And so I'm working on, well, how, what I, is it merchandise? Is it, is it donations? Do I go to a, a media producer and get them to put this on the web or, or be sponsored by Axe Body Spray? 
or do I do TikTok consulting for businesses? Those are all the kind of avenues I'm exploring. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'll let you know what, what I figure out. But if I were paid a media dollar, media exposure, I'd be very well off right now. But unfortunately, I'm not. The thing I do love about TikTok is that it's not Instagram. It's not just Kylie, Gen- Kylie Jenner and Kardashians and... <laughs> Sounded right until I said it. And you you know why? I was just reading an article about gerrymandering where apparently that gerrymander is named after a guy named Gary. And so it's actually gerrymandering. And so now I can't get my heart in my soft G's or (laughs) anything correct. But, you know, the thing I like about it is that there's a there's there's a wide variety of content creators that are not supermodels. I'm not criticizing you in any way for excuse not being me, a supermodel. Excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> uh, no, no, you're right. That that is the interesting part about uh, TikTok journey is that it is, you know, it's a platform that's been most successful with Gen Z, and Gen Z has been marketed to hell. They've they've seen we've gotten we've been a lot of writing about this, but like when Instagram started, it was cool because it took your crappy smartphone camera and then it made it look like a really professional, good looking image. But now as Gen Z has come up with like seeing really polished, using Canva today, anyone can do a really polished marketing image. And so it's the pendulum swung the other way is like the, the kind of rough organic um, like look that's become the thing that, that's worked with Gen Z. And so that's, they were the original uh, adopters of TikTok. But now it's expanded. And the reason that everyone should be on TikTok is that they are giving so much away in terms of media exposure. Um, you know, I, my video I posted today, I checked before our interview uh, started, I was at like 7,000 views from the video I posted. <laughs> oh God, excuse me. Uh, 7,000 views and currently it's up to, sorry, it's up 5,000 now it's at 7,000. Um, and that's for a video I posted that took a total of one minute. Like I, I knew a little bit about my subject. In this case, I was talking about a big monastery uh, in the middle of Minnesota, but I just picked up the phone and I talked at the camera in one unbroken take. I did no edits for it. I didn't have a, a special microphone or DSLR. It was just on my phone. It was so simple and easy to do. Um, the most important thing for TikTok is just creating content constantly. Uh, it's quantity over quality. Operators are already in general, very, 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 very busy. Is it worth the experiment given that you're still trying to crack the nut of converting those into paid tour takers? Do you have hope for it? Or is it, do you have, do, yeah. you, have the lux- do you have the luxury of exploring this, but you wouldn't recommend it to other operators? I mean, any operator can do this because any operator who's giving tours has a commute. And so on your commute, you can do your daily TikTok video. Like you can, you can finish your tour and you're walking back to the car, you take out your phone while you are walking. Don't even stop. Just keep going and just talk for one minute about an interesting thing that you'd say on your tour. Don't worry about uh, like taking content that people are going to learn on the tour. No one, no one, that's not a, that's not a concern. It's not going to affect the business side of things. What we do is that we have really well-crafted stories that we have rehearsed many, many times over. And so we have an amazing defensibility over anyone else who has to go think about what am I going to post today? You go, go mine your tours for content um, and then put it on a new medium and do it for a minimum of one month every single day with no, no breaks. 
uh, you can do this in two ways. You can either go out for the day and just do a bunch of videos and get 30 videos and just really drip feed them or just do it like I do. Like you're literally walking to your car and then doing the captions and all that and then hitting post. Make sure to do the captions. Make sure that you are in the video. No one wants to see a video of a forward-facing camera. You are the moneymaker <laughs> as a guide. Like that's our defensibility. That's what we're selling. Um, and I, I think it's worthy of experimentation because like I'm getting the, the lifestyle change has been so tremendous. Like where uh, yesterday was four times I was recognized in the street. Um, I at the state fair coming up, which is one of the biggest events in Minnesota. I'm going to be live at the state fair with the local newscasters on three different days so far. They're going to have me live on the air over there. Um, it, it's, it's gotten so much attention. I've not yet figured out how to monetize it, but I've never had this kind of wave that I've, I'm riding. I'm just trying to make sure I can stay on the surfboard uh, and not fall off by just you know trying to just do a brand of, deal. The size of your head on a, on a single surfboard. <laughs> I know, oh my God. <laughs> it's so top heavy. <laughs> <laughs> you got to lower that center of gravity if you're going to stay on that thing. Uh, I've seen you posting clips of yourself on local news and getting a lot of press. Are they approaching you or are you um, leveraging, yeah. leveraging, leveraging this and making a PR pitch? No, they're put, I'm doing nothing. Like the only thing I'm doing is posting videos every day. And then they, they, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> that's, that's the wild thing about it. And on top of that, like we are such a PRable story without needing to do a PR pitch. Just cause like, especially if you live in a, in a secondary market, especially like New York might be a bit harder, but if you're in a place that uh, tour guy, tours are a bit novel, um, then you're going to get on media uh, by doing this. Uh, you just have to suffer through the first week of getting 20 views on your videos because you, know, you need you need time. You need to show TikTok. You're going to post consistently. You need to give the algorithm time to find where your audience is. But because the nature of our business, the nature of our work is that we are um, in, in a hyper-local uh, content curation, uh, what's going to happen is that there's no competition out there. Like I, 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 I bet that uh, 90 plus percent of the tourpreneur community would be the only person on TikTok talking exclusively about what makes their city special and unique. Um, and that's going to be fed out to a lot of people. John O'Sullivan, you've shared an incredible array of nuggets and wisdom and experiences here. Thank you so much for being an entrepreneur. Thank you. Follow me on TikTok, please. We'll be linking to all of your beautiful websites, TikTok accounts, and everything else on tourpreneur.com. Be sure to check it out.